I'm going to read Isaiah 43, 1 to 3a, it's 16 to 21. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Saviour. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings out chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down and cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched by the wind. Do not remember the former things, or consider the things of old. I am about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness, and rivers in the desert. The wild animals will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, so that they might declare my praise. This is the word of the Lord. Today we're continuing talking about our hope in the midst of suffering and uh, in our Lent series. Uh, it was great having Darcy share last week on repentance um, and yeah, looking forward to kind of unpacking this Isaiah scripture for us tonight. Now as a, as a young adult, one of the things I loved doing uh, was I loved going snorkeling. Uh, here in our beautiful coast and I loved uh, waking up on a day and just like being able to just go out of the house just that easily now it's not so easy Uh, and just kind of getting in the car and going to go snorkeling and you you look outside it's a beautiful clear day Uh, and that feeling when you get close enough to the ocean you can just see it Uh, it's just that that nice feeling it's that beautiful feeling Uh, and um yeah, there's, there's one question on your mind as you're drawing near. And the question is, is it, is it calm today? Is, am I going to be able to see something in the water when I'm snorkeling? Uh, and then you get there and there's that sinking feeling. Even though it's, it feels calm as you're driving, it's actually choppy and windy down at the beach. And you're like, all right, I'm probably not going to see a lot, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to go out and give it a shot, see what I can see. Uh, and you go out there wanting and expecting to see all this beauty and life, and it's just all you see is sand and murkiness uh, and the dust of, uh, of what's going on in the water, uh, and you're, you, know, you just enjoy the water as it is because you can't see anything, you can't expect to actually see anything. Uh, sometimes I feel like that's kind of how life is at the moment. But I feel like, you know, we've got this clear expectation of we have this vision of what we, you know, we want to see clearly and have everything sorted out. And we, we're going along doing our thing. And then all of a sudden things seem murky and seems all messed up. And it's, you know, especially with, you know, COVID happening, we don't know if we're going to be hitting ISO one week, one day. And you just don't know. Things just can mess up all of a sudden. In this time, and and uh, you know, I've, I've myself has even just felt this this unknown, this cloud of not being sure of exactly uh, how I can see in the midst of all that is going on. Now, there's this phrase that um, a, a pastor that I follow from Melbourne, his name's Mark Sayers, 
um, and he's a pastor and cultural thinker, and he he's, uh, talks about kind of this, yeah, this current culture that we're in. And a phrase that he's been talking about at the moment is that we are living in a time of contested space in a complex environment. Contested space in a complex environment. Now, let me explain this. A contested space. Now, this basically means that there is so much fighting for our attention. So much trying to grab our attention. Much is asking for a response for us. There is so much expectation on how we respond. There are many competing narratives, many causes or products vying for our attention. We don't just have to make a decision. Um, uh, it, you know, yeah, we don't actually have space and time to make decisions. We just have to, you know, there's so much vying for our attention. And in our culture today, the, the way that we figure out decisions is often not getting away and thinking about it and contemplating the decision. Often it's, it's looking up a YouTube video or a Facebook post or uh, a marketing strategy is actually making our decision for us, even though we don't realise it. Uh, often our decisions, are, there's so much contested space that we're in, so much competing for our attention. This is what it means to be in contested space. Our attention is up for grabs, and there's so many elements competing for our attention. Secondly, we're, we're in a complex environment, an environment where things aren't just happening in linear sequence. There's not just this linear strategic plan. It would be nice if we could just map out exact plan of how things are going to happen, and it just follows nicely along the steps. But life is not like that. It's not just this linear sequence of things that are happening, but it's, it's much more complex than that. We're in a complex environment, an environment where things are interconnected. Things are actually a decision about this thing over here actually affects a decision over here. They're, they're interconnected, uh, the decisions that we have to make, a complex environment where, uh, yeah, we have to make decisions on, on the vaccine and we have to make decisions how we treat people in that and make decisions... On, on how we respond to the floods or the war in Ukraine. We have to make all these complex decisions around us. An example of this is there was a news story going around uh, when the floods were happening over east and there were people from Sydney who uh, wanted to go and help uh, support some people physically, go and help the people in, uh, in the flood zone. Uh, and they weren't able to help because they weren't vaccinated. There was a story going around and... It's, it's questionable whether the sources are correct. Anyway, uh, that's, that's besides the point. The point is that it, there's multiple aspects going on. To actually help in a flood, there needs to be this another vaccine thing going on. And there's this complex environment that we're in that actually one decision affects another decision that they're multiply interconnected uh, and this web of complex situation. And so this is what's going on in our culture today. We're in this kind of situation where we're in contested space, so much grabbing for our time in a complex environment where things seem interconnected and confusing and how do I know what fits where? How do I make the right decision? So this is nice. This is this haziness that we feel. This is this haziness that we're going through trying to navigate what's going on and how do we respond? How do we make a decision about all these things Happening Now, in the scripture in, in Isaiah, this is a, a great example of how we can actually see 
God moving or, or the people of Israel responding in a complex situation, in a time which is uh, very complex. And uh, in, as you read through Isaiah, uh, we're here in, in, in Isaiah 43, but uh, as you read through I, the, the book of Isaiah, you, you will notice that when you get to chapter 40, uh, there's a sudden shift in what's happening. There's a change in, in the style of what is being declared uh, by the prophet. Uh, and so we see here in the first 39 chapters, uh, Isaiah is prophesying to the people of Israel because of their wrong ways, their evil ways. And he's uh, talking to them about how that their, their worship of pagan gods uh, has led them to a place where they're going to be defeated by the enemies. See, Isaiah saw the imminent threat and saw that, that they were going to be in exile, that, that the nation has gone so rotten that uh, we're going to go to a place of exile. And Isaiah himself was an outcast and someone who uh, the king, uh, it actually is, there's um, uh, tradition says that King Manasseh at the time of uh, the end of Isaiah's, Isaiah's um, prophetic voice, at the end of his time, uh, it was King Manasseh who uh, was not a good king. It was a bad king. It was a king who brought in pagan worship, idol worship. Uh, he, he brought in um, the, the worshipping of uh, sacrificing your child at the old altar of Moloch, this evil, evil stuff that this king of Israel brought in. And, and tradition has it that it was this king that actually uh, was a part of uh, the martyrdom of Isaiah. Uh, it was tradition has it that he saw him, saw him in half. Very graphic. It was beautiful. Um, so, yeah, he's not a nice king. And so Isaiah here is prophesying over the people of Israel, this, your ways are wicked, that judgment is coming. Judgment from these, these other nations, Assyrian and Babylonian nations, but this is God's judgment on us as a people because we've lost our way. But then as we get to Isaiah 40 and onwards, we have a change in tone because this is a mo moment in time where we've actually, the people of Israel have already experienced exile. And Isaiah here is, is prophesying and, and, and writing of comfort. He's trying to comfort the people in exile. He's trying to respond to the nature that, yes, you are going to be in exile, but there's comfort, there's redemption for us. There's restoration that God wants to take in place. There's redeeming that God wants to work for us. And so he saw a people that would one day be forced to leave their land. He saw that their houses, their temple would be destroyed. They would, they would be forced to be immigrants in a foreign land, working at how to serve and worship their God, Yahweh, when all around them there was pagan worship in a Babylonian context. So that he saw and foresaw that this would happen and that that these people would have to work out how to live and worship God in the midst of all this that is going on, the destruction, and they're figuring out this new cultural way of living. This was a complex time for these people, working out how to respond to all this happening around them. And so now we turn to Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43 are these Words of comfort and encouragement. Words that God will bring restoration. The beginning of this uh, chapter in, in verse 1, 43 verse 1, it says, But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, 
He who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. We have this fear not statement from the prophet here. This fear not in the midst of our confusing haziness, this complex time that we live. Do not fear. Do not let this anxiousness overwhelm you and grip you to the point where fear has become the bigger thing in your life than the hope of what God can do in redeeming you. Fear not, because I have called you by name, says God. You are mine. There's this beautiful love language here in what God is declaring over his people. In verse 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. There's this sense of the fire that we walk through, the harshness of waters that we go through. They will not overwhelm you. They will not be the thing that consumes you. You will not be burnt in the midst of that fire, but there is something of God being with you in the midst of this. There's no promise here of a quick fix for a trouble-free future from Isaiah. But there's a promise of God's sustaining presence. God's sustaining presence right through to journey with them, right through all that these people will go through. There's a sustaining presence of God that will be with them in the midst of their difficulty and unknown. These are words which we ourselves can treasure. We ourselves can actually grab a hold of. For just like in the old covenant, we, the people of God in, in the new covenant, even though we have the cross and uh, the empty tomb, even though we, we celebrate what we do in Easter, we still remain as aliens in exile in a hostile, complex environment, in a culture that is secular, is very much not Christian, is far from that place of Christian. We live in a, in a culture, in a context where we're exiles in a sense, in a foreign land, trying to serve God in the midst of a world that doesn't honour God. We live in this world, in this time. And so we, us, ourselves, can grab a hold of God's promises for us, his faithfulness for us, that he is faithful for us. And this is the same God who was faithful to the Israelites The same God is is here for us today. He's faithful to us. He will not leave us. He will not forsake us. He will bring us, in a sense, home. So we can grab a hold of the faithfulness of God in the midst of what's going on here. That these even are passages. If if you are experiencing that, that anxiousness, declaring these words that when I pass through the waters, that God will be with me. Through the rivers, it shall not overwhelm me. That when I walk through the fire, I shall not be burned. The flame shall not consume me. Words that we can declare over our lives. And this, this image of fire is, is something that uh, is talked about a lot throughout the Bible. And, uh, and particularly, it's connected a lot with suffering. Connected so much with suffering. And um, Timothy Keller, he talks about fire and suffering in this way. He says, things... Put into the furnace, 
properly can be shaped, refined, purified, and even beautified. This is a remarkable view of suffering, that if faced and endured with faith, it can in the end only make us better, stronger, and more filled with greatness and joy. Suffering then actually can use evil against itself. It can thwart the destruction, destructive purposes of evil and bring light and life out of darkness and death. This is the beauty of what fire could do in the midst of what is going on. It actually can bring a purifying, a shaping, a beautifying of our lives as we go through difficulty, as we face the complexity of our lives and embrace God working through us and in us in the midst of all that is happening. He can actually produce something in us that is beautiful, that is crafted, that actually is filled with greatness and joy, is stronger through the fire. As things, as as elements are shaped and, and become stronger in fire, so God actually wants to do that work. In us. The scripture continues in verse 16. In the second part of the scripture, it says, Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings out chariot and horse, army and warrior, they lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Do not remember the former things or consider the things of old. I'm about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Now it's easy uh, for us to to read this scripture and just think of the, the metaphorical journey, the journey of God kind of leading us through Jesus uh, into the promised land and into the kind of redemption of people. But it's easy for us to disassociate the the physical reality that these people were actually in physical exile expecting to actually return to Jerusalem, expecting to actually come back to the promised land. And so these people reading this prophecy would have thought of the, the, the excitement of returning to the promised land, a physical journey home, a physical journey to this exile. One that this physical journey would not just be straightforward and just nice, but comes with complexity in itself. There's reasons that Isaiah prophesies this word. And so to understand, there's a couple of kind of big quotes that I want to read from a commentary by Barry Webb um, to kind of of look at this aspect of uh, leaving exile and coming on this journey uh, back to the promised land. It says, first, uh, so the yeah, issues with kind of coming on that journey. First, it was across unknown territory, this journey. Most, most of those who were young and fit enough to travel would have been born in exile. And although Babylon was not their true home, it would have been the only place they knew. The wilderness represented a break with even that limited security Secondly, Jerusalem was a long way off, between 500 and 900 miles, depending on the route. The returnees could expect to be travelling for at least four months through harsh terrain in which they would be vulnerable not only to exhaustion but also to attack by bandits. The wilderness meant hardship and danger. 
And what could they expect on arrival? Not hearth and home and plenty, but a devastated land. And the arduous task of rebuilding their lives from scratch. In a sense, the wilderness was just as frightening a thing as Babylon. This is an interesting thought that this this prophecy from Isaiah is prophesying, yes, God's going to lead you back. There's going to be this way through the wilderness and that there's going to be a new thing. And we can just think of that as exciting and, yes, the new day, or come on, let's do this. But in the process, it actually meant leaving what was comfortable. Even though we were in exile, they would have been born and grew up in Babylon, that this is what they knew. And leaving and going on a journey, going through the discomfort to come to a land that was devastated, a land that was destroyed. And this... This, for me, incites that, that feeling. For us, it's, it's just easier to stay in that place of comfort. Why do I want to do the new thing when what I know is just, that's, that's nice? It's comfortable. It's easy. I've got it sorted. I know what's happening. What if this new thing is more dangerous? What if this new thing was more uncomfortable? What if I'm exposed to dealing with, with more of things in my life? I can't just stay hidden and comfortable in Babylon. Can't I just be content with doing my best, which I secretly know is enough, but is what I know? We have this pull ourselves of just staying with what we know rather than letting God lead us into a new thing he wants to actually bring alive in us. And often the time that new thing is actually scary because there's so much already going on. Like there is enough happening in our world, that complex Contested space, but, you know, we all each have these things happening in our lives, things going on, to actually think God's doing a new thing. Ah, just Let's just keep going with what we know. This is nice. And there's that thing that, yeah, we need to actually realise sometimes God is actually speaking. He's doing a new thing in us. He wants to do a new thing in us. And so we have to navigate this contended, complex situation and grab a hold of the new thing that God wants to do. And a new thing doesn't mean changing everything about how we worship God. It's not changing our religion. Uh, it's, it's just opening up our lives to actually go, what is the new thing you're doing in me, God? How are you realigning, rediscovering something in me? What have I held to myself? in a comfortable place? What if I just let live in this Babylonian kind of exiled place, just gone along with what the culture is doing? What is the new thing that's in me? Another quote from Barry Webb. He says, With this in view, Isaiah speaks of former things and a new thing. Verses 16 to 21 are full of allusions to the exodus from Egypt centuries before, and the journey through the desert to Canaan, former things which were fundamental to Israel's whole existence as the covenant people of God, but then paradoxically, having deliberately called them to mind, Isaiah diverts attention from them. Forget the former things, he says. See, I am doing a new thing. He knows human psychology only too well. The past can become an idealised world, the good old days. 
into which we retreat when the future becomes too frightening to face, where it can be a springboard from which we launch ourselves into the future with new strength. Isaiah does not want Israel to retreat into the past. He does want them, however, to remember that the wilderness has been conquered before and armed with that knowledge to go forward and to conquer it again. As they do so, they can be assured that the Lord goes before them to make a way for them through the desert, just as he made one for their ancestors. They can be the witnesses God has created them to be only by going forward with God, by grasping the new thing he has done for them. This beautiful picture here that he references this old way the Egypt way of going through the wilderness, but we don't want to hold on to those just things, but actually submit ourselves to God to say, Lord, let you do a new thing in him, grasping for the new thing that God wants to do, grasping for him in his presence, grasping for him to make something known for us, grasping for him. Not just the idealised version of a new thing or idealised version of what we've always done. Grasping for God and what he is doing. This is how I see us navigating ourselves through this terrain that we are entering, through the complexity of our lives. is not just by working it out in what we've known and figured out before, but by grasping onto God and his vision for us by grasping onto how he continues to see us. This is what will get us through. This is what will be our strength as grasping onto him, even as this Lent time, this time that we're in of of reflection and repentance is a time where we can continue to grasp onto him, repenting of the things that we have put in front of God and actually being a time and space where we reflect and go, God, I'm sorry for those things in my life where I've grabbed a hold of these things that have become more important than you, but I want to grasp onto you, my God, and the new thing that you want to do in me. And so can I encourage us to, let's confront this thing. Let's not just be okay with kind of being comfortable, but actually see the new thing that God wants to do for us. And For me, this looks like, yeah, not this big new plan or this exciting, glamourful thing. It's just time with God where you submit to him. This is what the new thing looks like. It looks like you being silent, submitting what God is actually doing for you and allowing him to speak and direct you and and take steps in what this new thing looks like. And yeah, I even feel like for me in this these last uh, month or so, there's been this these moments, these key kind of little elements, little things God has been saying to me, and I haven't really got the full picture of what they all look like, but I feel like there's these steps, these little things that God is leading us to to do a new thing in us as we continue to submit in Him. So lately, there's these um, two shows Michaela and I have been watching on Apple TV. Uh, and two of them have really been contrasting each other, They're like at opposite ends of our kind of watching experience. Uh, one uh, is called The Shrink Next Door, and uh, it's uh, we've kind of, at each episode we've been watching, we haven't finished it, but 
each episode, we've just been becoming more agitated by it, uh, by the, what is going on, the, the, uh, the story that's been playing out. Uh, essentially, it's about, uh, I, I won't, I'll just give brief dis- descriptions. I won't give the whole plot away. Uh, it's essentially about a therapist uh, called Dr. Ike uh, and his patient, Marty, uh, and Marty comes to Dr. Ike, and uh, initially um, his, his discussions with him release some tension in his life, and it's almost like depression, and his anxiety goes from him, and he sees Dr. Ike, Marty sees him almost as this saviour figure, that he's saved him from this grip of depression, and, and so then uh, the story continues on about uh, him basically, uh, you know, giving his life for Dr. Ike, and uh, doing all that he can for him uh, and uh, involves doing a lot with his money and financially and essentially uh, a big part of the story is Dr. Ike taking advantage of Marty, taking advantage of his wealth, taking advantage of his possessions and taking so much from him without him, him really realising and you're just waiting for him to get it and understand, come on, he's taking advantage of you, but it's just not happening. <laughs> uh, that's our frustration with the show. Um, and so you just see this just pure, just evil in him, this deception, uh, this annoyance of how he just continues to take advantage of him. And it, it has broken the relationships of Marty's life. It's broken so much of what he knew, and it's almost like that relationship with, with this doctor is the only thing he knows now. And so so much has been fractured in that, and you just see the evil of that. But in that process... You see the story actually showing that he, uh, Dr. Ike is doing this because of his own, own things going on, his own worries, his own things in childhood yet that he hasn't dealt with. And when those things get brought up and, he, and someone asks him to deal with that, he, he responds kind of reactionately. And he doesn't want to fix that. He doesn't want to deal with that. He doesn't want to do a new thing in him. He'd rather just take advantage of another person. And this, this deep, just, yeah, it's kind of... The same going on. And so there's this refusal to actually deal with his own issues, the refusal to to deal with his fear. That's what's really happening for this guy. This is the extreme of this. This is how we can respond to an extreme, complex situation is refuse to deal with it and just do our thing. And in the process, we actually harm the people around us. The other show that we've been watching is a show called Pachinko. Uh, which, yeah, it's a really amazing story, uh, kind of a Korean family uh, in their 20s, uh, J- Japan occupied Korea, uh, and they're trying to get out and find some wealth, this poor family. Uh, and in this story, there's just uh, beauty uh, because of the way that people have responded. And there's one particular scene where um, there's a Christian man who comes into a woman's life, and this woman is utterly... Uh, destroyed by something that has happened in her life. And she, the, the way that she sees her future is, is utter mess, that her, the rest of her life is going to be absolute suffering and pain. She's going to have no joy in her life. It's going to be absolute hardship and a terrible life. This is her future that she sees before her. And this Christian man comes into her life and actually yeah, brings absolute redemption and restoration. And I was watching this scene as this, this man, uh, by, by offering him, his, his life to this, this woman, is surrendering so much, is giving up so much, 
is sacrificing so much because he's operating out of love. And uh, yeah, tears are coming from my eyes as, as I'm watching this scene as this man responds in love and grace. And so these two opposing kind of shows that we've been watching at the moment has been interesting because they kind of combat each other. One is showing absolute evil of a humanity and one shows the beauty of humanity and how we can actually respond in different ways in the midst of suffering, in the midst of complexity, is will we actually choose to hide away from responding, hide away from what God is trying to do in us and actually just operate out of fear, refusal to deal with what's going on really inside of us, refusal to let God actually into the parts of our lives where we hold too close to us that we can't let God in. Or will we, in a sense, walk through the fire, the suffering, and the difficulty and be people who actually embrace that difficulty but grasping onto God? Embrace the difficulty but grasping on to God. That as we walk through and learn how to let God shape us, we embrace that difficulty grasping onto him. And so uh, in, in the Lent, Lent series, traditionally this Sunday is, um, was known as Passion Sunday. I don't know if it's, do you still celebrate as a Passion Sunday? Next week. Ne- next week is, yeah, that's uh, also, anyway, um, I, was, I was looking at things, it was kind of confusing. Some, some of the tradition says that this Sunday was Passion, but then now next week is also Passion. Anyway, I'll, I'll figure it out. I'll, I'll learn, guys. I'll get there. <laughs> Yeah, Passion Week is the following week. But as we come closer to uh, Jesus and his story, his, what he has done for us, uh, we do see his passion for us, his love and commitment to us, his faithfulness to us. And so as we learn to work through uh, the, the complexities, as we grasp onto him, I want us to continue to see his love for us, his faithfulness for us. And even in this time as we uh, come closer to communion and have that moment, uh, let, let there be space for you to actually just come to God, come to Jesus and go, God, I, I want to give you all of who I am. And I just embrace and grasp onto you and your love for me. Let that be the thing that fills us tonight. And so, uh, yeah, my prayer is that we can continue to confront the challenges of our lives as we grasp onto God. Let me pray. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done in us and for us. We think of your love and sacrifice, your faithfulness for us. God, that you would lead us in the midst of the wilderness, that we would walk through the fire and not be burned because your producing in us something that is beautiful. And so we just submit to you again tonight. We humbly submit and offer ourselves, our thinking, our fears, our anxieties, everything that is working in us. God, don't we just surrender it to you tonight? We declare that we will not be overwhelmed by these things. We will not be overwhelmed by what our culture says to be overwhelmed by. 
that we will keep trusting and leaning into you, grasping you and your presence. Thank you, Jesus. You're amazing. In your name, amen.